2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. Welcome to another frenzied day in the markets. Right now, the Dow's up 606 points, but take a look at the intraday chart to really capture everything that's played out here. We had reports the president is eyeing a trillion dollar infrastructure package, positive trial results on a potential COVID treatment. That sent the Dow up 847 points at the highs. Not the end of the story, though. Stocks lost a lot of those gains midday when Fed Chair Powell said, quote, if the market function continues to improve, then we are happy to slow or even stop the purchases, referring to a lot of the asset purchases that the Fed has been doing lately. Markets did not like that. We started to drift off of those highs, and we hit session lows. As Beijing then announced, it's shutting down all schools due to a COVID resurgence. At the lows today, the Dow was up only 48 points. As you can see, the buying has picked up a bit now, and we're back up more than 600 points. So definitely a roller coaster so far today. Let's get
3: the very latest now from Dominic Chu. Hi, Dom. All right, so as we talk about this whole movement, the volatility that you just pointed out in the markets, one thing that we have to talk about as well is just how far we are away from record highs in the S&P 500 that we saw earlier this spring. So from between here and right now, we are still down about 8% or so in terms of the record high levels. However... Just in a bit of positivity, remember, down here, we had lost 188 S&P 500 points on Thursday amidst a market volatility. We've now gotten back roughly, you can see, about 130 of those points as well. One place to mention here, what's happening with retail A huge record number for retail sales in America this past month. That's lending some strength to the consumer discretionary ETF, ticker XLY, up 2%. You can see the retail ETF that tracks some of the smaller names as well, up 2.5% and 14% gains in upscale retailer Nordstrom as well. So big moves there. And then we'll top it off with, yes, there is a hot IPO of the day. That is Royalty Pharma. It is up, again, 51 percent. It priced at $28 per share. That was the IPO price. So a big move higher as IPO demand seems to continue. We'll keep an eye on this particular stock. Kel, I'll send things back over to you.
2: Dom, I'm impressed that's the second largest pharma IPO ever. That's quite a headline.
3: It's a huge move, and there was a pretty good subscription for it. So I think that there is still demand for IPOs out there. We'll see if that's indicative of the rest of the year for IPOs as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Dom. Thanks very much. Now, Fed Chair Jay Powell did warn that the U.S. economy faces a deep downturn with significant uncertainty about the timing and strength of a recovery. For all the headlines, let's bring in our Steve Leisman. Steve.
1: Kelly, thanks. Uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell, on the first two days of his testimony on the Hill, uh, acknowledged the better data, including the retail sales report, and that May employment report that surprised to the upside. But as you said, he continued to express concern about uh, about the uncertainty that's out there, including concern about a second wave of the virus and a long recovery in which millions may still find trouble getting back to work?
4: A large number of people will not be able to go immediately go back to work at their old job or even in their old industry. There'll be a significant group that's left over even when we, after we get the employment counts. I do think you know, they'll be hard-pressed to find work and they're going to need support. They, they'll have regular way state unemployment insurance for a period, but that's something I would be looking at: is what kind of support will they need?
1: Powell did suggest that under some circumstances they could uh, stop or halt that, uh, those purchases they're making and lending. But that was not the operative idea that he was suggesting. He's really suggested unwavering support of the Fed in provide, providing loans and making asset purchase. He urged Congress to do more as well. Some concern from senators about the Fed doing too much and how it would run off its growing balance sheet. And Powell also talked about his concern about the Federal Reserve distorting the corporate bond market.
4: I don't see us as, as as wanting to run through the bond market like an elephant, you know, doing things and, and uh, you know snub uh, snuffing out price signals and things like that. We just we want to be there if things if things turn uh, bad in the economy.
1: Kelly, what we don't know is what would turn off these programs the Federal Reserve has. We know what turned turn them on. That's the coronavirus. Uh, that's the negative numbers we've had on the economy. But it's unclear whether the Fed or what, what construct or what uh, tests the Federal Reserve would use to either slow them or stop them.
2: And, Steve, we also spoke with Vanguard's chief economist yesterday on this notion that maybe the next fiscal package should include some kind of automatic stabilizers. In other words, you know, if the unemployment rate doesn't fall fast enough, then you could do a more extended measures to support uh, people who are jobless or, or whatever form that would take. And then if the unemployment rate is better than expected, you know, some of those extra benefits would fall off more quickly. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting concept. I don't know if there's any chance it becomes reality.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's emblematic of the idea the Fed went in with both feet and, and there was a hue and a cry from all over the country, including uh, politicians for the Fed to do as much as it could, uh, as quickly as it could, and it did not embed necessarily in all of the programs, and some of them there are, but it did not embed in all the programs any way for it to shut them off. For example, if markets were to be functioning better, the Fed is not, is not lending above market, for example, or not buying uh, corporate bonds above the market price, it's buying bonds at the market price, and then it's obviously lower than themselves. So this whole bond market question about how it gets in, how it gets out, and what triggers either uh, is is unclear, and it's something the Fed going to have to deal with a little bit more as some of these questions from congressmen uh, may be on the increase.
2: Yeah, and even if they're buying at the market price, it's only there because of the Fed support in the first place. I mean, if you know, exactly. I, I understand that people say the bond market's so much better now; they shouldn't do the purchases, but it's only where it is because of that. I mean, I don't; I, they can't kick the ball you know down the road forever, or maybe they could.
1: It's a tricky question, uh, Kelly, and, and it's one that's happened before where the Fed said it was going to do something, had a great market reaction towards the direction the Fed wanted it to go, and then the question of whether it can go in. Uh, Powell said today, we have to do what we said we're going to do, and obviously the Fed began today hmm. buying up those corporate bonds uh, through that index process that we talked about yesterday.
2: Yeah, interesting. Steve, thanks very much. Steve Leisman with all Pleasure. of the headlines there. For more on this, I'm now joined by Stephen Stanley, Chief Economist at Amherst Pierpont Securities, Barry James, President of James Investment Research, and Michael Kushma, who is Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. It's great to have you all here. Stephen, I'll start with you because I think you're a little more skeptical of whether all of these Fed interventions are warranted right now. Is that because of the data or because you're concerned about their longer-term implications?
5: Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think the economy is proving that it's coming back a lot quicker than we first thought. And getting some of these programs up and and running has been difficult for the Fed. So, for example, we're still waiting for the first loans to be made from the Main Street facility. And um, it's been three months. So, hopefully, there'll be large take up and it'll be very helpful. But uh, times are ticking. And if if they don't get this thing rolling pretty soon, um, you know, the the economy, I think, is going to be as close to back to normal as we're likely to get for a while.
2: You know, that said, and we got a bunch of data, Stephen, this morning, uh, the retail sales was much better than expected on the month. But still, if you go through where we are year on year, clothing and accessories is down 60 percent in May. Electronics down 30 percent. Restaurants, drinking establishments down 40 percent. You know, there's definitely some bright spots, but I mean, these levels are horrible still.
5: Of course. And think about where we were in May. I mean, at the beginning of May, most states were still fully locked down and the the bulk of them started to uh, reopen a little bit uh, over the course of the month. But even by the end of the month, there were plenty of retailers that were still closed, uh, at least in their physical stores. And so I think you'll see continued improvement in June. I think what we've learned is that the first stages of the recovery have come faster And more forcefully than we thought. And of course, you know, some of the later stages are going to be more difficult because things that, uh, as as Chairman Powell himself said, things that are just tougher uh, to manage in a post-COVID world, things with a lot more social interaction. So we can't declare victory anytime soon. But I think so far, the news has been good.
2: Absolutely. Michael, I want to ask you about their impact on on the corporate bond market in general. I mean, maybe markets more broadly, are they hurting price discovery? I mean, is there Intervention doing more harm than good. I, I don't think so.
6: Right now, I think there's still a lot of worry in the, um, the investment community about what the future is going to hold. And individuals, uh, investments best investors as well as corporations are still kind of hoarding cash. And we saw the largest amount of corporate bond issuance on record in March, April, and May. And part of that is just to re- restock coffers to get ready for whatever happens in the future to prepare for the future, whether it's taking advantage of opportunities or for our, for shoring up the uh, balance sheets while spending is, is weak. So I don't think it's, it's there yet. I think that if we start seeing corporate bonds spread, making new historical lows, while there's still a lot of uncertainty, then I don't think you could argue that Fed, Fed intervention is causing a market distortion, but it would have been unlikely the market itself would have taken things to those levels. On the other hand, I'm not too un, unhappy with this because they've intervening in the treasury market for years and years and years, and you could argue, that what the world needs now and the U.S. economy needs now is ultra low real interest rates, not just for the U.S. government to finance its deficits, but Mm. to finance the private sector as well, to make financing as easy as possible, to make sure liquidity problems do not turn into solvency problems.
2: Sounds like you'd be in favor of of capping bond yields, too, then.
6: Well, I think that is the next stop. If for some reason we get a repeat of what happened in early June and 10-year Treasuries start heading back over 1 percent and they don't come back down with Fed jawboning or just some increased quantitative easing, I think that is the next step. But clearly, they're not going to adopt um, yield curve caps and controls on longer-term bonds, but there's no reason why they couldn't adopt it for shorter maturity bonds. And I would say they effectively already are doing that by using forward guidance, saying that yeah. they anticipate no changes in rates for several years. That basically implies two-year and three-year treasuries are not moving.
2: And the yields are still so low at these levels. Uh, But anyway, one of the other ways, Barry, that people are looking at whether the Fed is distorting markets is, Is the stock market? I mean, let me rattle off some of these stats where we've seen just this retail investor surge of interest. The biggest dash from cash since 2009. So we just showed this graphic, but people took their cash levels down by about a percentage point. Uh, 78% of investors say stocks are overvalued. That's the most since the survey began in 1998. So that was before the worst of the dot com uh, mania the following year. And and of course, we have all the other anecdotal evidence about what's been going on in the market. So what do you think Barry as a longtime market watcher is going on here?
7: Mm-hmm. I get worried when one of my young friends gets his stimulus check and invests it and says I went from 1000 to 6000. Wow. I think, "Oh no.
2: <laughs> Got to hire him."
7: <laughs> He'd never done any, any of this before. So, uh, it's frothy right now. That's what the retail is showing you. And the market has really gotten very narrow. The top 5 stocks are up very nicely this year. The other 495 in the S&P are flatter down and on an average they're down. So um, I think we're at a point, really, uh, excuse the flying analogy, where you're flying a jet and uh, you start to get ice on the wings. You only have two choices, go up or down. I know it sounds strange. Down, the ice melts. You go up, it sublimates. It just goes from solid to gas. And I've had experience with both of those. And that's where the market is today. You can't really kind of stay where you are. We're at an inflection point. So going into smaller, maybe in that value arena, that's taking more risk uh but that that could really be the next wave it should be the next wave or taking the risk down uh, and uh, staying with, you know, big names that are well-financed. And that's the stocks that I'm recommending. I think we probably have a, a little bit more trouble ahead for us. And so uh, companies like Costco and Medtronic and Verizon, we have those in our, our Golden Rainbow Fund. And we think that, you know, they're, they're going to be real solid and, and hold through this.
2: It's fast. And any time we talk about, you know, we haven't heard someone talk about sublimates on this program, in a, maybe ever, um, Perry. But before you go, so why is it that you think people should err on the side of caution and not uh, – on the side of this rotation continuing because we have heard a lot of people say this is the time to do more value more small caps that sort of thing
7: well I do think that that it is time to start building your your, your ideas. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're putting together ideas of how we want to do that. But probably there'll be yet another opportunity. I mean, we had one last week, obviously, very short-lived. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we think that that's, that's a, a good approach to start getting ready and then maybe using any kind of a pullback to go ahead and pull that trigger.
2: All right. Gentlemen, thank you all for a great conversation. We appreciate it. Stephen Stanley, Michael Kushma, and Barry James on these markets today. Now let's get to the news on the COVID-19 drug front that's also helping stocks today. This one involves a steroid treatment for the virus. Meg Terrell is here now with those details, Meg.
8: Hey, Kelly, some surprise results this morning. It's a commonly used steroid, a very old drug called dexamethasone, uh, and it was included in a large trial in the UK that involved more than 11,000 patients looking at a bunch of different drugs already available to see if they could help uh, for the severe effects of COVID-19. Now, they found uh, when they looked at about 6,400 patients uh, who were tested either on dexamethasone or on placebo or in standard of care, uh, that dexamethasone reduced deaths by a third in patients who were ventilated and by a fifth in patients just receiving some oxygen. They didn't see any benefit in patients not receiving oxygen support, so it is helpful for the more severe patients. Uh, Oxford professor Peter Horby, uh, who ran the trial, saying, quote, dexamethasone is the first drug to be shown to improve survival in COVID-19. The survival benefit is clear and large in those patients who are sick enough to require oxygen treatment. So dexamethasone should now become standard of care in these patients." He says the drug is inexpensive, on the shelf, can be used immediately to save lives worldwide. Now, the medical and scientific community more broadly is calling to see the full data set to really understand uh, the benefits and any uh, potential safety issues that could arise with this drug. They want to see the full study published. Meanwhile, Kelly, not everybody seeing this as universally good news. Uh, Investors in the smaller vaccine makers like Moderna, Novavax, and Inovio uh, driving those shares down today. However, experts would point out just because we have a successful drug doesn't mean that we don't also need good vaccines. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, already. raise
2: your hand if you wouldn't want the vaccine before treatment for having it really badly. I, I was actually going to ask, <laughs> Meg, if this is anything for Gilead. I mean, for does it rival remdesivir as a treatment or could it be used in conjunction?
8: Well, they're, they are totally different drugs in terms of uh, how they work and what they work on. So uh, remdesivir was given to patients who are in the hospital already, but that's because it's given by an IV uh, and that's how they ran the trial. But many think that if you give remdesivir earlier before patients are really severely ill, it'll work better. Whereas they found dexamethasone is helpful for when patients are having that severe uh, inflammatory reaction that's attacking the lungs uh, when they're in the hospital.
2: All right, Meg, as always, thank you. Uh, for that very latest. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell and a possible treatment there. Coming up is Apple, a stealthy beneficiary of the stay-at-home trade. Citigroup going to a street-high target of $400 on the stock. And they'll walk us through the five reasons you should own it right now. And the housing stocks are jumping as homebuilder confidence surges. And Lennar says the market is super strong. We're going to have the numbers and much more on today's rally when the exchange continues.
7: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
9: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow today pursue your tomorrow with P Jim a leading global asset manager
2: welcome back to the exchange more good news on the housing front with homebuilder sentiment posting its biggest one-month increase ever Diana Olick is here with more for us Diana.
0: Yeah, Kelly, and it beat the estimates as well. Builders' sentiment jumped a record 21 points in June to 58 on the National Association of Home Builders Index. Any reading above 50 is a positive market. Back in April, it plunged a record 42 points down to 30. Now, that has stocks of the builders, which have already bounced a lot from their lows, moving higher again today. Builders are pointing to record low mortgage rates, very low supply of existing homes for sale, and a flight from densely populated urban areas out to the burbs and the backyards. The chairman of one of the nation's largest home builders, Lennar, said buyers came back far faster than he expected, most touring virtually and some buying without ever going into the home. That surprising surge in demand, he admitted, caught Lennar off guard.
10: As the market stalled, we paused our land purchases, land development, and our starts as well. So we know that as we get to the fourth quarter, we're going to have a little bit of uh, a little, we're going to be a little bit short um, on our uh, on our closings, uh, but nonetheless, we we rebooted pretty quickly as the market started showing signs of recovery in housing.
0: The NAHB reported big jumps in current sales conditions, sales expectations in the next six months, and especially buyer traffic. Regionally, builder demand improved the most in the Northeast and was highest in the West, Kelly. Diana, Lenar's stock
2: has been kind of mixed, but mostly down about 1% or so on the news. Is that because a lot of this was already baked in?
0: Yeah, it was. And also because they reported yesterday after the bell, it got a big jump in the after hours trading and it may just be some profit taking. The stock has been up pretty well over the last day or so because people were expecting this beat coming. We've seen a lot of the other builders reporting beats and we saw, you know, mortgage applications to purchase a newly built home jump as well. So a lot of this may have been baked in.
2: One more quick thing. At what point does this all translate into rapidly rising home prices?
0: Well, that depends entirely on the existing home market. That's the key here. If we get a lot more supply of existing homes for sale, then prices will ease up a bit. But we have no signs of that happening anytime soon. And the builders, while they want to ramp up, they haven't ramped up fast enough. So with all this tight supply and so much demand, that's when prices just keep going up.
2: Yeah, I know it's one to watch. Uh echoes of the past a little bit. Diana, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Diana Olick with the latest on housing there. Coming up, searching for income with a 10-year yield parked below 1%. We've got three names with dividends over 5%. Plus, one biotech analyst says his research suggests we may get a vaccine by November. He'll join us to explain. Remember, you can always watch and listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Look at the 10-year yield, about 75 basis points. It languishes well below 1%, and it hasn't broken above that level since March. So if you're searching for income these days, well, the energy patch is an option. Take a look at some of these yields. ExxonMobil, which is up nearly 40 percent in three months, is still providing a dividend yield over 7 percent. Marathon Petroleum has nearly doubled in the past three months and yields nearly 6 percent. And Valero, up 57 percent in the past three months, still yields almost 6 percent. Now, it's not typically the first place you'd think of, but these energy stocks have become some of the most prominent dividend plays in the market. And now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Sue?
9: Thank you so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. President Trump has signed an executive order that aims to raise standards for policing and transparency. The president says those standards would ban chokeholds unless an officer's life is in danger. In New York City, three police officers have now been released from the hospital after drinking milkshakes from a Shake Shack and falling ill. Initially, the Police Benevolent Association said the milkshakes might have been tainted with bleach. Police are investigating, but they say they have determined there was no criminality by Shake Shack employees. In Beijing, all schools have been ordered closed amid a new surge in COVID-19 infections. The Chinese capital has also raised its coronavirus emergency response to its second highest level. And here at home, Amazon has a new technology to help monitor social distancing. It's called Distance Assistant, and it is already in use at several Amazon facilities. Amazon plans to open source that technology so anybody can deploy their own version. Hopefully they can say it. Distance assistance. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I am so excited for that to come to all the establishments near us. Yep, exactly. Uh, Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera got with the it. latest there. Well, today CNBC unveiled its eighth annual Disruptor 50 list. It's the fastest growing venture capital-backed companies that are driving innovation today. Julia Borson is here now with a look at one newcomer to the list that's part of a growing trend we're all getting very familiar with. Julia? <laughs>
12: Well, Kelly, with the pandemic accelerating demand for digital education, EdTech company Guild Education enables companies to give their employees education as a benefit. Guild's Education's customers include Fortune 500 companies such as Walmart, Disney, and Chipotle. Now, they use Guild's tech platform to enable their employees to enroll in programs ranging from high school and trade classes to bachelor's and master's degrees, with classes from colleges and universities around the country, as well as access to a guild coach.
8: We're having a lot of conversations about upskilling and workforce transformation and that's devastating when it's companies that are undergoing layoffs and furloughs um, but we're spending a lot of time there talking about how education can be an outplacement tool um, as well as companies thinking about their internal mobility strategy. Uh, How do they think about upskilling their frontline or mid-level workforce and transitioning from what maybe were jobs of the last decade or century into jobs of the next decade.
12: The five-year-old Denver-based company has raised nearly $230 million at a $1 billion valuation. It's helping about 100 million workers who need access to higher education. And in the wake of the pandemic, it's also helping companies including Disney offer education to their furloughed workers with a new program called Next Chapter is giving laid off workers access to valuable skills.
8: By being able to help folks have access to high quality short term courses and programs that can help them move from maybe a low wage job into a middle wage job, we felt like there was a silver lining where we could help these companies do something meaningful for the workers they were having to let go.
12: Guild Education says that its customer base is growing and they do expect demand for worker education to continue to grow. And it's not just because of the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic, but also as more workers are displaced because of automation and artificial intelligence. It's worth noting Guild Education is collaborating with the other ed tech company on this year's Disruptor 50 list, Coursera. Back over to you guys. That is
2: very cool, Julia. Very, very cool. Thank you for bringing that to us. Julia Borson with Guild Education, part of the Disruptor 50. You can see the whole thing on CNBC.com. Coming up, Apple is more than 50% off its March lows, but one analyst says there's a lot more room to run. He'll give us the five reasons to own the stock as they put the street-high $400 price target on it. Plus, a retail recovery. The sector's surging today as economies open up. We'll speak with the CEO of PGA Superstore about what he's seeing in the changing face of retail. As we head to break, here's a look at today's best-performing retailers, Bed Bath & Beyond, Kohl's, Macy's, and Capri. Holding, stay with us. back. Let's get a check on these markets after another volatile session today. The Dow was up 850 points at the highs. At the lows, we were only up 48. That was after we got news of more aggressive virus lockdown measures in Beijing and the comments here at home by Fed Chair Jay Powell that the Fed would decrease bond buying as the markets recover. So we were way up. We came all the way, almost all the way back down. And now the Dow is back up 606 points, 2.3 percent, 2.2 percent higher for the S&P, 2 percent higher for the Nasdaq. So pretty consistent. And all S&P sectors are higher. The leaders today are healthcare, uh, materials and energy. And let's get a quick check on treasuries, too, with yields moving higher today. Uh, You know, we're talking about in the 10-year, 75 basis points. Again, nothing major. But we were Below 0.7%, I believe even yesterday. So a pretty nice move to the upside here for that 10 year in particular. And that is helping the banks today. Take a look at the regional bank ETF, the KRE. It's hitting its highest level in almost a week, at least earlier today when we were at the very highs. And it's still up more than 4% on the session. Speaking of hitting records, Apple is near its all time high. It just announced minutes ago it's opening 75 more stores in the U.S. this week, the stock higher on that news. And it's been on a tear lately, up more than 10% in the past month, up more than Than 50% since the March lows. Today, Citi boosted its price target on Apple from $310 to $400. It's a new street high, saying there are five reasons to own the stock right now. In fact, joining me now is Jim Suva, the senior tech analyst at Citi. Jim, it's great to have you here. And what would you say is the number one reason to own Apple right now?
10: Well, Kelly, it's great to see you also. We think the number one reason to own Apple right now is simply the second half of this year is going to be very exciting. A lot of innovation. In fact, many people were concerned that coronavirus would slow down their innovation and they wouldn't have a 5G product lineup. We have absolutely confidence that they will have 5G lineups in time for Christmas, and it will be big, and a lot of people will want those. So we think that, plus the work-from-home move of people doing things remotely, such as you and I, as well as other guests on the show, are doing things such as buying the Apple AirPods as well as buying Apple Watch for fitness. And all these wearables are going to set up for very great Christmas time. So we think the number one reason to own Apple mm-hmm. right now is simply – the second half of the year, Kelly, is going to be very exciting for the company.
2: And I can go through those five reasons uh, more granularly. You basically just outlined them. Number one, the 5G iPhone launch. Number two, expectations are going to reset lower. Uh, potential for share gains and Applewood. I think that's a reference to all of their uh, kind of content plays. Wearables, uh, still high growth, as you reference with the AirPods and Apple services. Talk about Applewood for a second and the success they're having in some of these media forays.
10: Well, we know that they've gone into Apple TV, but when we look at the company's global market share, I'm talking beyond the United States and beyond mainland China, there's one particular market that Apple is materially under penetrated in and materially lower market share, and that is India. They have about 1% share in India. And also when Apple goes into more and more content, we think that it's gonna potentially bring a package where they could potentially offer Apple Music Apple TV, Apple Services, Apple Arcade, all these additional things packaged together for a great family experience. So what we call Applewood is their move into India as well as to more content. We see that increasing and quite exciting. And to give you some share perspective, in India, they have about 1% market share. And in North America, close to about 50%. And globally, just under 20%. So when you see that um disproportionate low amount in india yeah and india has over 1.3 billion people yes definitely some economic challenges in the country but there's also a lot of wealth in the country too that's a big addressable market where apple's moving its manufacturing some of its newer sites to be in India so they can produce more affordably and not have the input in tariffs. Yeah, That's absolutely. why we think India is a great long-term growth, Kelly, for them. So
2: what are the biggest headwinds, Jim? I mean, even as we're talking about uh, China and India, there's a border skirmish between the two nations. We don't know what's going to happen with the renewed spread of coronavirus. It's just shut down Beijing and even in some parts of the U.S. here. Um, it, you know, are the biggest risk factors for the stock basically um, another wave of kind of people staying at home because of the virus, you know, slower global growth? Or what would you say your biggest concerns
13: are?
10: My biggest concern is that coronavirus comes back in the second half of the year, and we have to shut down the world and the businesses and the retail shops that Apple had to do also. We see that as less likely, but keep in mind is worst case scenario, if we do have to continue to work from home, people are buying more iPads for education. They're buying more AirPods for re- remote connectivity people are working out more at home and wearing apple watches on their treadmills and around their neighborhoods so even in that worst case scenario we still think things are pretty exciting but in that worst case scenario you know the entire market wouldn't do that well but simply we're quite encouraged by overall a lot of progress being made in coronavirus unfortunately there are some hot spots that do pop up yeah. so you are right kelly coronavirus is our biggest concern overall for all of our tech coverage.
2: So let's talk about earnings expectations for Apple and the multiple that $400 would put them at. And the fact that I believe that would also put them around a, a trillion and a half market cap.
10: Yeah, you're right. Uh, the math is is actually between a trillion and a half and two trillion. So, you know, splitting hairs are about 1.75 trillion wow. for $400 target price. But the valuation is important. We view it at a 25 times price to earning, including all their cash, which is about $100 billion. If you remove that cash, it gets you closer to around 25 times earnings. And that amount may seem higher than normal, which is true. But Apple doing more with services are getting people into their platform of being very sticky, very reoccurring revenues. And we expect that to help out the multiple and in essence becoming a little bit more like consumer growth staples, where you got to have these items to continue to uh, enjoy life and succeed. Your smartphone today is actually more important than the shoes you wear. You can swap out your shoes every day. You can replace them easy, but your iPhone or your smartphone, it's a part of essential of of who you are and where you go, even more so than your your purse or your wallet or your
2: shoes. We do
10: these things as very necessity in everyday
2: life. Real, real quickly, Jim, we spoke to your uh, counterpart on the street, uh, Tony Sakanagi, last week. He's a little more cautious on Apple, even suggested they might need to buy a search engine uh, in order to kind of offset any issues they might have uh, with Google and Microsoft paying what they currently do for that kind of uh, default use on the iPhone. Is that an idea that that you would get behind? Uh, Is that something that you think makes sense for you?
10: I actually think Apple has so much more addressable market in other avenues, such as healthcare, such as education, such as artificial intelligence, virtual reality, that those are gonna be higher sought after markets rather than creating their own search engine. When Apple created Apple Maps, it didn't go out too successfully and there was a big backlash there. So we think they're actually, instead of gonna be focusing on search engines, they're gonna be focused on healthcare the apple watch where it can identify if you fall down or become unconscious yeah. and call your loved ones or paramedics very important you know think about education of remote learning of how things are changing in there think about artificial and virtual reality for learning to train airplane pilots and doctors from around the world that didn't have access before these things we think apple is really going to go after more so so we're we're more All of right. a big fan of the healthcare virtual reality and artificial intelligence.
2: Jim Suva, thanks for your time, sir. Appreciate it.
10: Great to see you, says, Kelly. Apple's Bye-bye.
2: going to 400. And coming up, retail sales making record gains in May as economies reopen after being locked down. We'll dig into the numbers and speak with the CEO of the PGA Superstore as they reopen locations across the country. As we had to break, the National Retail Federation CEO, Matthew Shea, warned against another economic shutdown on Squawk Box earlier.
1: We can't go into lockdown mode again. Retail shopping in and of itself is not an unsafe act. We saw that with these economic first responders that remained open throughout the last three months.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. We learned this morning that retail sales surged 17.7% in May versus an estimated 8%. It's easily the biggest monthly jump ever as economies across the country have started to reopen. Now, clothing and accessory stores posted a whopping 188% gain on the month, but they're still down 63% from the previous year. Now, sporting goods, hobby, musical instruments, and bookstores, those rose 88% last month and are actually up about 5% from a year earlier. These numbers all sending the retail ETF higher by about 3%. Today, there you see it, the XRT. And for more on the sales surge and what the long game is now for retailers across the country as they reopen, let's bring in Dick Sullivan. He's CEO and president of PGA Tour Superstore and chairman of the National Golf Foundation's Board of Directors. Mr. Sullivan, it's great to have you. Welcome.
4: Thanks, Kelly. Great to be here.
2: I I hear there's big crowds. So where, where are your stores now finally able to reopen?
4: Well, we're opening all stores now. All 43 stores are open. We just opened New Jersey yesterday. So across the U.S., all stores are fully open.
2: Now, people go often for the experience, you know, in order to kind of hit the golf ball, try out different equipment and that sort of thing. And we know that golf has been one of the, the things that people have been able to do uh, throughout the lockdown period. Would you is your business up from this period last year or are you still down? You
4: no, know, our business since the middle of May has been phenomenal. Uh, in fact, the first two weeks of June, we've had record breaking weeks. First week of june was record-breaking second week was record-breaking we're in our third week and this typically is the number one week of the year being father's day uh, this is sort of our christmas week so once golf courses started to open back up in may uh, customers were flooding our stores uh, also going online and buying product um, so it's one of those few sports that encourages physical distancing we still want to have social activity uh, but it's one of the few sports that we've seen you know a real big surge obviously we all seen the the main numbers. But we've seen new customers coming into our buildings uh, than we've ever seen before.
0: Yeah, I'm
2: not going to be one of them. I'm absolutely awful uh, <laughs> at, at trying to hit the golf ball around. I, I really admire people who are good at it. Um, is this sustainable? You know, again, so I don't know if you're running a little bit up or, or down still from last year, but is there going to be some pent up demand, maybe some catch up? We know even the stimulus checks might uh, help people with a little extra spending money right now. What happens in a, after the next couple of months, though?
4: Well, it's all good questions. We're asking ourselves the same thing. I mean, we've been up 25, 30 percent yesterday. We're up 50 percent over last year. Uh, So we're seeing, you know, tremendous numbers, certainly pent up demand. We were closed down in April and golf, you know, is really important in April. It's almost like owning a ski resort and having your ski resort closed in January. So certainly there's been a shift in the buying pattern. Uh, So no question about that, but I think one of the most exciting things, as I was saying, the new faces in our stores, we're seeing so many more women in our business, our our women's business, our club business, even the beginner box sets business is up 40 to 45 percent. So the, the fun thing about our business is more kids coming into the game, more women coming in the game. So I think it's sustainable from that standpoint. Um, it is questionable, you know, what happens with unemployment, what happens with stimulus checks, because I think that's driving some of it, of course. But the prognosis is really good based on these other data points we're seeing.
2: How different is it in the stores these days? How many people are allowed? Is there a kind of a reservation process? What's that like?
4: Well, every market and every city based on mandates was different. In Arizona, there was it was appointment only. Uh, now, there's, there's still occupancy limits, um, but we've never encountered any limit in cap in terms of our stores. But it's interesting because we started a we put a starter at the front of our stores, a, a, a new position in our company, so that customers could feel comfortable coming in. Because a lot of people had emotional concerns about shopping mm-hmm. retail. Like, is there too many people in the store? What do I do? Where do I go? There's signs everywhere. You know, Beyond the normal masks and gloves and hand sanitizers and face shields and all of that, You know, we're an experiential store. When people want to buy putters or they want to buy a new driver, they have to experience that. So we spend a significant amount of time wiping down clubs and making sure that people are safe, making sure our our associates are safe, and making sure our customers are safe. And and there is a lot of customers that still don't want to shop in our store. So our e-commerce business is up about 150%. But a a new innovation for us is curbside caddy, which is sort of like a drive to restaurant. So 30 to 40% of our online purchases are people that want to come to the store and have it delivered to their car you know, in a safe environment. So people are buying differently. As you know, people are buying groceries online and having them delivered golf. So I don't think that part is going to change. I think people are comfortable with digital purchasing.
2: Yeah. And all of this without uh, kind of those national golf events really kicking off yet. So it's amazing that people are kind of returning to it for the first reason. It was appealing just to get outdoors and, and kind of take their time with it. Uh, we have to leave it there, but it's been great to have you. We'd love to have you back.
4: Well, we think we can help you with your game, Kelly. We've got lots of people <laughs> no, here. I can give you believe lessons me. as well. No, thank, I'm thank irredeemable. Me
2: yeah, no. If you see me entering a top golf, just duck. Uh, thank you so much, <laughs> Mr. Sullivan, and, and best of luck. Thanks. He is the CEO of the PGA Tour Superstore. And still ahead, more than 21 million people are collecting unemployment as the economic fallout from the coronavirus continues. But now some of them are being asked to return the money. We have those details next. And as we head to break, take a look at the names leaving the Dow today. Caterpillar, the biggest gainer of nearly 5 percent. Merck, Boeing and Home Depot hot on its heels. We'll be right back. Welcome back. As each state dealt with the onslaught of filings for unemployment benefits, quite a few are now realizing they may have overpaid some workers and they want their money back. Rahel Solomon joins me with more. Rahel? Yeah. Hi, Kelly. So hundreds of thousands of unemployed Americans across the
14: country have been informed that they actually owe money due to overpayment of benefits. That includes 46,000 people in Texas, at least 35,000 in Virginia, and reportedly more than 24,000 in Ohio. So overpayment could be because of an oversight, a misunderstanding about eligibility, fraud, or a technical error, which was the case in Virginia. And for Marnie Behan, a waitress at Buffalo Wild Wings who lost her job in mid March when the restaurant had to shut its doors, well, Ohio is now requesting that she pay back all of the $3,000 she was sent. The state is claiming that Behan actually does not qualify for benefits, even though Ohio paid her for weeks after she proved eligibility based on hours and number of weeks worked.
11: I was really upset. I mean, it was just a wave of uh,
14: stress
8: and frustration. And I've been working so hard just to get paid in the first place, and now I have to give it all back. Um, It was really upsetting and stressful.
14: So Behan is currently appealing her case in Ohio. She's no longer receiving benefits. And Kelly, she also still hasn't been called back to work.
2: I think this is crazy. Look, I mean, if, if it's fraud, obviously you got to go back for the money. But if it's because of mistake or confusion, I mean, everybody's confused about exactly how this works or doesn't work right now. And I have to imagine the federal government with well, the whole point is to err on the side of helping people at a time like now. That was the whole point of sending out checks.
14: It certainly was. And yet, Kelly, what you'll hear from a lot of these states is that they have to maintain the integrity of the program. Right. And so for every person who possibly was overpaid, There's someone who maybe is not getting the money that they need. So they would argue that, listen, if you've been overpaid, whether it was our fault or whether it was yours, someone else may need this money and you can't keep it. So, uh, for example, Virginia, we mentioned they've been able to recoup about 94 percent of the money that they were sent out because they caught it so quickly. But in other cases where they may not catch it so quickly and you have expenses and you're the worker that receives it. And by the way, you also don't know that it was more than you were supposed to get. Might be harder to send that money back. Kelly. That's
2: wild, Rahel. Thank you so much, uh, Rahel Solomon, with all the details there. Coming up, Moderna is saying it could have vaccine efficacy data by Thanksgiving, but one healthcare analyst says we won't just have data. There could be a vaccine on the market before the election. He joins us to discuss that next. And tune into Squawk Box tomorrow for an interview with General Motors Chair and CEO Mary Barra, 7:30 a.m. Eastern Time. Don't miss it. We're back in two. Welcome back, Moderna, J&J, and Pfizer among a slew of companies that are racing to produce a COVID vaccine. While Moderna is the leader, others are not far behind and are expected to release efficacy data this summer. The companies are moving at a quicker speed than anything we've seen before. With the FDA endorsing these fast trials, not only are drug makers moving fast, manufacturers are already making deals, too. And my next guest says all this suggests we might get FDA approval of a vaccine before Election Day. Joining me to explain is Jared Holtz, healthcare equity strategist at Jeffries. Jared, this really caught my attention because it seemed like that would almost be insane to think we could have a, a vaccine that quickly. And I, I'd love to know how, just how substantive you think those chances
13: are. Kelly, great to be here. I appreciate it. Um, I think when you know we sort of consider all of the elements that are out there with respect to how many trials, the, the fact that the FDA is co-sponsoring or the government is co-sponsoring so many of these trials... And we're going to have phase one, two data, you know, by the early summer. It just seems like everything that has happened over the past few years leads me to believe that the government would love to have something on the market by the election in order to sort of at least temporarily solve for COVID-19 hmm. and then to get the market even higher than it is now. So I think all of the things married together point to a potentially earlier approval than a lot of people think.
2: So here's my question. If if what you're describing is basically this big push, this kind of understood push that this is a really important government uh, objective, of course we know that, but even with political implications, is that going to make people wary of this vaccine? I mean, how how kind of like foolproof does this thing have to be so that people don't go, I don't know if I really want to get that?
13: Right. I mean, the, the approval and then the, the efficacy or, or how good this vaccine is after only a few months in clinical trials are there can they're completely different issues um you know a lot of the feedback we've been getting from clinicians and investors is that there is a lot of skepticism or cynicism with respect to you know how these vaccines are going to be viewed in the public and and that's the other side of the equation that i I really haven't dug ultimately that deep into um, in the writing that i've done very recently I still think that an a- approval of one of these vaccines is very likely and that the uptake will be very limited based on, again, a-, a very limited data set of true efficacy. These vaccines will not have been in the clinic a long enough time period for us to make intelligent decisions.
2: Yeah. So wh- tell me who you think in terms of the companies. I mean, Moderna, like we said, it's kind of the first out of the gate. But who are you really watching? What, what should investors be thinking about in terms of if they want to bet on this happening who's most likely to get us there
13: well i think moderna is probably in the lead or very close to the lead the uh, the oxford university astrazeneca collaboration seems to be picking up a lot of momentum as of late and that will have phase two data um imminently june july in that time frame so i think based on that those are the two front runners in my mind and then pfizer um, you know, they have a collaborative project going on, Johnson & Johnson, later in 2020. So those, to me, those are the four leaders and there's the whole host of other um, vaccines in development that we have to watch out for. But you mentioned Moderna, I think that's spot on. And then the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine project, I think is the second. Those two, for me, into the end of 2020 are the ones to watch for.
2: What if they don't uh, deliver? What if the, the early trials don't go as well as people think right now?
13: I mean, then I think we're back to square one. Then we have to sort of identify what other vaccine approaches we can take into 2021 and further years. Again, we're not going to have any efficacy data that we would typically need in a vaccine. These trials are, you know, five, 10, potentially longer. Here, the FDA has accelerated the pathway by, you know, over a decade in, in some regard. So I, I think the, the entire game has changed. It makes me think that we have to be Discussing it and considering it in a very different light as well. Yeah. But if none of the vaccines prove efficacious, and certainly if there's a safety signal that, that happens between yeah. now and the end of the year, the conversation is changed completely.
2: Well, still, uh, like I said, uh, catches my attention if it's even possible we might have something before then. Jared, thanks so much. Jared Holtz with thanks. Jeffries. And that does it for The Exchange. Today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.